This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Did you watch the Olympics the other day? The final of the road race. Wasn't it great to see Fuji Speedway again? I thought it was Suzuka. No, no, no. Fuji no? Speedway. Yeah. Oh. The, the, they, they, they ended the two road races, the men's and the women's at Fuji Speedway. I loved it. I was thinking, yeah, yeah. I know where they are. I must be watching a different Olympics because I'm sure I saw something from Suzuka. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> but hey, yeah. have you ever raced at Fuji? No, I never went. I'd like to go. Even in sort of Formula good. 3. You remember those Formula 3 um, sort of invitationals? You didn't do that? No, I, I, I wasn't invited. Oh. I presume it's an invitational, so you have to be invited, <laughs> and I obviously wasn't. <laughs> The dust has hardly settled from the last Silverstone fracas, and we're now into the Hungry Week. And this is F1 Nation with Tom Clarkson and me, the 1996 Formula One World Champion. Did I ever mention that before? Damon Hill. Brilliant. <laughs> we're off. I'm excited. Off. Well, are we get, how much are we going to talk about what happened at Silverstone? There's a few things that have happened since then, haven't they? Well, they, they, most of, it's mostly words that have happened. Um, I've not heard much from the FIA, actually. They've been quite quiet, haven't they, on this? They haven't come out and said, we are, you know, going to look at the incident in the future. If there's any kind of collisions like this, we're going to take a tougher line. There's none of that that I've seen. No, there's none of that. And they are waiting on Red Bull, who have until midnight on Saturday, that's 14 days, to ask for a review of the incident. And I think their gripe might be the leniency, what they perceive to be is the leniency of the penalty given to Lewis Hamilton. And I know they have lots of data that they've been looking at. For example, I think they've they've got proof that Lewis, they claim, never went that fast through cops again in the race. Yeah, I, I, I did get some information that he was way faster than he'd ever been through through cops, which is which is going is doing. I mean, he got I did get a fantastic toe off of Max, so he might he might have surprised himself about how fast he was going into cops. But I put it to you, DH, that had Max Verstappen continued, I don't think he would have gone as fast through cops again in the, for the rest of the race either. It was a little bit like you remember that film with um, James Dean, one of his very early films, and they and they're playing chicken. They're getting two cars and they're trying to drive drive a car over a cliff, and you have to jump out the car at the last minute. Only one of them gets their trousers caught on the gear lever or something, goes over the cliff, and that's when they all grow up and become realise life is not a game. That's a great analogy. Great analogy, that's yeah. That's what it reminded me a little bit of. But I just remember they did, the FIA have said, we're not going to allow, or it's not allowed, to go up and see the stewards during the race or at any other time and try and influence them. So they did issue that statement, which came about because I thought Michael Massey said to Toto on the radio, well, why don't you go up and have a chat with them? Did he? He did. He did. He did say that. So, and now I don't think he's going to be saying that. He's not going to say that. So, um, evidently, that was the wrong thing to say because you're not allowed to influence the stewards. As I said last week, that was my only gripe with the whole thing. I thought was you can't go and influence the jury while they're still making their decision. Other than that, racing incident and this and that. Yeah, I still think that. Have you changed your view having sort of read a bit and seen a bit? Do you still think it's? I think they both. I think they need to cool it a bit i think they were both going at it scarily aggressively in that first race and i think it was a product of the previous race in other words the sprint on the saturday gave indication forward knowledge to mercedes that if max got out in front you wouldn't see him for dust and i think they knew they had to get ahead and I think that so a combination of factors which might have made Lewis a little, more, a little bit more desperate and aggressive and, and Max as well, because that first that opening half a lap was possibly the most exciting and daring and also slightly risky opening lap. I think I've seen in I don't know how long it was pretty breathtaking. It was, yeah, breathtaking on the edge. And we were everybody, I think, watching had heart in mouth and they kind of expected something to happen. And it did. 
and you see the replays and you see on some of the social media people in the in the crowd have got footage of max flying towards them in the grandstands and that car was moving really fast max did take a hell of a whack so all a bit risky really and i think we were lucky in many ways that we didn't have an injury I was at Biggin Hill last Thursday and the guys there were showing me the 360 degree camera footage from Max's car. And so you're looking at it from obviously all angles. But what stays with me is A, the silence after Max has hit the wall. It takes him a good four or five seconds to say anything over the radio. (laughs) Then he's taking bits of bodywork out of the cockpit. Bits of carbon fibre have flown into the cockpit during the crash. And for, the, for, for a good few seconds, he's just removing bits of carbon fibre before then hauling himself out of the car. And he does just stop and lean against the halo before he gets out of the car. And you can hear him on the 360 degree camera. <sighs> There's a real audible groan. And he just that's him just, <laughs> I've just had a massive 51 degree crash and and that's actually the moment that stays with me having looked at all that footage yes quite amusing to see him lifting the carbon out but it's the almost primeval groan of got away with that 51g not 51 degree but did i say degree yeah but you know we know what you meant it was shocking actually to watch but so that's now led christian into this kind of battle about you know whether or not it was right to celebrate and we had all of that stuff to deal with which is we'd all got a little bit testy didn't it afterwards i mean this is motor racing after all and you've got to expect that that will happen people are going to celebrate winning races and we mentioned it before we do you know we were surprised that lewis didn't wasn't made aware but the feeling is i think they're bruised definitely in more ways than one um, in red bull about what's happened and claiming that it's cost them 1.8 million dollars probably lost prize money as much as damaged car and Honda are saying they're not sure about the engine yet. So that's an interesting one to see what they're going to do with the the, um, the motor. Oh, I love that. Sending the motor back to Sakura in Japan, thinking that they can salvage it. It's sort of like, it's just a flesh wound, you know, yeah. Monty Python's holy grail, isn't it? How, how can that just be a flesh wound? I've never, it was an absolute mess, that engine, wasn't it? Well, the, the, definitely the bodywork on the car was ruined. But you, when you design an engine... You don't say, okay, now throw it at the wall at 150 miles an hour and see if it still works. I mean, what does it do to the... The internals, yeah. Yeah. I suppose the only good thing is it possibly would have stopped. The engine might have stopped before it hit the wall. I don't know. Could you hear an engine running when you listen to that thing at Big Hill? Sadly not. Yeah, yeah, you know, massive shock to the system uh, on the the power unit. And they'll run that in in some point and they'll find out whether it's broken or not. But then... Maybe they'll check it before. But it's set up the coming race, hasn't it? You are going to be in the driver's press conference on Thursday. The question is going to be, is it fight, fight, fight? <laughs> is it, or is it, are you going to patch up? Has there been any communication? Has Lewis phoned Max to say, look, I'm sorry, it was a bit of a racing thing. Maybe it was a bit... Have they tried to do anything like that? I remember that Bernie got me and he did this once before, I think, with uh, with Senna and Prost as well. But he kind of organised a patching up as the great peacemaker and kind of got us to sit and pose on the wall, pit wall for a photograph of us all being chums, <laughs> which was uh, a bit disingenuous because I think he really wanted us to fight. But um, it is a bit like, you know, how, is this an unpatchable relationship now? Is it just uh, daggers drawn until the end of the championship and beyond? Well, that's the big question, isn't it? And um, hey, did you ever phone Michael Schumacher? For example, hey, we're talking crashes at Silverstone. 1995, you and Michael came together. Did you ring? No, I didn't. I didn't have his phone number anyway. I mean, Michael was very good at turning off any kind of ability to communicate with him. You know, he, he was quite icy as an individual in the paddock. So, no, I think he wanted his opponent to stew in whatever rotten PR had been generated from his clumsy attempt to pass. Talking of PR, I can't help think the PR battle when I look at everything that's been written and said since Silverstone, I would say has been not won, but I would say I would say Mercedes have had the upper hand slightly since Silverstone in terms of what is being written and said, partly because they've offered many more people to the media. 
Toto Wolff's had his say. James Allison, the new chief technical officer there, he's had his say. Andrew Shovlin, engineering director Trackside, he's had his say. Whereas the only voice we've heard from Red Bull is Christian Horner. And I'm surprised that Red Bull haven't, you know, what would Adrian make of it? Let's hear Adrian's thoughts. Or what about Pierre Vacher, their technical director? It'd be fascinating to know what they thought. But for whatever reason, they don't offer them up. And therefore... There's less written from a Red Bull perspective than a Mercedes perspective. I wonder why they do that. I didn't. I, would, I was tempted to phone Adrian. You know, Adrian knew it. But I kind of know what his answer is going to be. And it's going to be, he's really pissed off. <laughs> he's not happy about that at all. So I think that Christian putting it down, sometimes when it's that heated, I mean, Helmut Marcos said some sort of, there's been some message coming out saying that he might be looking at some legal angle to this. But I mean, if you do that in motorsport, where are we going to end up with if we get lawyers suing each other for car crashes in, in motor racing? I mean, you know, we'll be tied up in red tape for the next hundred years. You know, it's it's a problem that has been looked at. If somebody was to get hurt, is there a, a civil claim involved in or even a criminal one, you know, in, in our sport? And we, we I think my, my view has always been you enter the arena once you've entered the arena. You've accepted the terms and the understanding that there is in that arena as to how it's conducted. I mean, it is gladiatorial. Somebody is going to get hurt, whether it's emotionally or physically. You know, these things are going to happen when you put cars on tracks and go that fast and, and you get hot-headed young guys who want to be the best. It's going to happen. And you have to say, OK, well, then nobody in that arena can complain about the outcome. You understand the terms when you come into that arena. Yeah. The rules of the circus. Formula One is a circus. You either come in and accept the rules of the circus or you don't. The people who don't accept the rules of the circus and they can be in any sphere, whether they're drivers, technical, media, whatever. If you don't play by the rules of the circus, you don't last very long. That would be my take on it. Look at Juan Pablo Montoya. He never accepted the rules of the Formula One circus and eventually he had enough. He went. I think there's a whole list of other people. But talking of that $1.8 million bill that Horner was claiming that is going to cost Red Bull, if you'd had Adrian explaining how that is going to impact in this cost cap era on not only development for this year, but also for next year, you might get a little bit more sympathy rather than just throwing the number out there. Let's. How's it actually going to impact the team? Well, that I think, I think it's really interesting because actually I think what appears to me that Michael Massey has been trying to achieve, and I don't know this because I haven't spoken to him and got a definite answer, but it seems to me that he's throwing out penalties when cars collide, when when accidents happen. There must be someone to blame in a situation. And the goal of the sport, ultimately, is to get cars to race without colliding. You know, um, sometimes it's unavoidable that they take risks and these things happen. But what you can't have is a sport where you use your car as a weapon to prevent the other person from overtaking you because where's the limit to that? You know, we had the extreme situation in Suzuka in 1990 with Senna and Prost. It was clearly a malicious move. You know, Senna had no intention of making the corner. He just wanted to hit Alain Prost and become world champion. That's not a sport, is it? That's just basically a, a foul which resulted in a victory. There has to be a point where somebody is trying to apply fairness and so running into people has to be stopped so if there is an there's another reason let's say it's not penalties imposed by the FIA but it's cost let's say if the team will be damaged because their precious amount of money that they have to spend is being eaten into because one of their drivers keeps crashing into each other. I mean, I, I don't know what bill I racked up with car crashes, but I, well, it was probably well over $1.8 million in my career. You know, uh, you add it up. I mean, even, in, you know, you've got to include testing and everything. So damage to their budget may well mean that the team bosses will say, listen, guys, can you mind not crashing the car? I know you want to win. I know you want to be aggressive, but Oh, can you just not break that front wing next time? Because every time I do that, it's £150,000. DH, that's a really, really good way of looking at it. But will drivers look at the big picture when they're in the heat of battle? I think they will do. Because if you, you know, they're adaptable to the criteria that are at play. And if the criteria that for a team going forward is that they cannot afford. I mean, how many, when you race at the back of the grid, they send you out some quite often and they'll say, 
just so you know, this is the last rear wing we've got. You know, or just so you know, we're running out of tires. Or we've, you know, when you've got when you've got a team with no money at all, they say things like that. Can you please qualify this car, but not break it and not use too many revs or you know make any mistakes? Those are the things that a Formula One driver is actually normally expected to be able to achieve. It's like in a war. Sometimes you've only got so much ammo left. What a fascinating way of looking at it. And this has happened, you know, in recent years. If people are saying, oh, yeah, but this is all in the days of pre-qualifying. No, just before Force India went into administration, Andy Green, the technical director of the team, would tell Nico Hulkerberg and Checo Perez, this is it. This is the last front wing, exactly as you're saying, TH. So <laughs> this really does happen uh, and at the back of the grid. And, and, and the change in mindset that you're talking about at the front of the grid might take a while for the penny to drop. But yes, I think it has to happen. It set a very volatile kind of landmine there, isn't there, in the, in the, in the whole sport, the conflict between Lewis and Max. The rivalry that we're watching is the changing of the guard for the future of the sport. Lewis is hanging on to the tail end of his career, whereas Max wants to crack on and start attacking world championships and he hasn't started yet. Lewis has definitely got the mindset of, I would like to stay on and win even more and then put it further out of reach, but he still hasn't cracked the total of Michael Schumacher, which is seven. So this is what, this is, what is in the minds of these drivers. This is the clash we're seeing. We're seeing a guy not letting go or not giving up on a world title because it's, if you like, it's the final cherry on the cake, you know, and Max is going to try and stop that happening. And that's where we had Michael Schumacher coming up on the rails to Ayrton Senna in 94. Are you saying that one of the reasons Ayrton Senna continued in Formula One was because he could see the threat from Schumacher and it was as much to stop Schumacher winning as it was for him to win? You know, it's fantastic if you can get to a place of dominance, but there's always someone new coming up. That's something worth fighting for or fighting against, but you know time is against you and the new era will be someone else. And actually letting go of your position, your identity as the man, it's quite difficult. I mean, Nico got out, he won a championship and he got out. Did you, as a racing driver and sportsman, respect Rosberg for doing that? I think I understood it. In 96, famously, I didn't get retained. By, I wasn't sacked, by the way. That's a, it's a term that often is used. Even I use it, but I wasn't sacked because I didn't have a contract for the following year. So I never had it. I never, it was always a one-year contract with Williams. So, but in 96, I won the championship. They didn't want to keep me. And so I went somewhere else. But after that, I just thought it was like extra time. I thought, well, I've got maybe one more championship in me. I'll, I'll crack on and see if I can get another one. But if I'd finished at the end of 96, I would have had one of the winningest averages of anybody in the, in the sport. You know, maybe I should have stopped. But what, what would I have done, Tom? Hindsight's a wonderful thing. But did that even cross your mind at the end of 96? I was pretty, I was pretty disgusted with the sport and the way I'd been treated in 96. With the sport or with Frank? Well, well uh, it's, it's the way that side of things works. I thought this doesn't seem particularly, I use the word fair, but <laughs> of course, you know, that is, that is a completely useless word, isn't it? And I was brought fairness. I mean, when it comes to the political side of it and the strategic side, the career strategy side of things, it can be baffling. I mean, Lewis has played it brilliantly. He's gone from one of the leading teams to another team that became even more dominant than the team he left. You know, that career strategy side of things is very, very key and it requires a certain acumen and a certain insight. In terms of the brightness of Lewis's light bulb, I think that accident proved that it's still really bright. He really, really wants it still. He's prepared to put himself in that position at 180 miles an hour with everything that he's achieved. I think that's remarkable. Yeah, well, he could have lost his front wing and he could have been out of the race and it wouldn't have been so wonderful. While we're talking about this crash, we have a man in the waiting room who can give us a bit of Dutch perspective on it all. It's Jack Ploy, pit lane reporter for Ziggo Sports. He was on the show earlier in the year. We like to call him our Dutch correspondent. Fantastic to have you with us again. Jack, are you there? Hi, good. Thank you very much. And you? Oh my God, where is he? Amsterdam City. 
Doesn't that look lovely? Did you bicycle to where you are? Now, yes, Jack? yes, yes, yeah. yes, we do, every day. Is it electric bike or is it? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm old, Damon, so I, I have an electric one. Yeah. That's, you know that's not very good for the environment, don't you, electric bikes? I, mean, I know, you know, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you get a petrol I, bike? <laughs> no, 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 I got, I got a, a car, uh, not an electric car. I know that I'm very rude on uh, the environmental uh, situation, but I have to change somehow. Oh, they're so good, those electric bikes are on them. Yeah. I do, but electric mountain biking, they're just so much fun. I don't understand why you electric bike. What's the point? You get on a bike to take exercise. So what's the point in having the bike do it all for you? You may as well ride a motorbike. The point is, uh, I had a heart surgery and I had COVID. So to use my normal bike, it's only 400 yards and then I'm totally empty. So that's why I'm using the electric bike. Oh, man. You're quite literally saying on your bike, Tom, aren't you? Okay, I get it, Jack. I'll no. get I'll get. <laughs> <laughs> but you still expose yourself to the, the thrill and the anxiety of our sport in Formula One, though, don't you? Absolutely. And I want to apologize for all the fans living in our country who are not part of our sports, but they are on social media doing such a bad thing. So I want to apologize for my country, fellow men. That's not the way the normal Formula One fans react. So we, people involved in Formula One, don't accept that. Yeah, well, then we have to deny the people who want to turn it into a battleground. They have to, we have to deny them the sport because we have to say we're not going to do it. If you're going to respond in a, an abusive and, uh, and disgusting way, then um, we don't want you. And we... Well, we, we don't want them listening to this podcast, and we told them that last week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so any, if any of them are listening to it, can you turn off, not, not listen to it? <laughs> please, please, now that, shut off. <laughs> Jack, we've been discussing what happened at Silverstone. And can you tell, have you had any insight from the Verstappen camp since the race? What yes, can you tell us? I cannot share that much. But I think that the main thing is that Max, although he is very young, is not impressed by all the stuff surrounding it. He only wants to beat fair and square Lewis Hamilton on track. That is his main goal. He has nothing to do with all these people who are shouting all these other things. He doesn't want to do with that, any of it. Yeah. I remember feeling that when I was racing and I was being applauded by British fans, I didn't, what I didn't want to do is to turn it into jingoism. You know, I didn't want to support you know, uh, we're better than everybody else because we travel the world and we have fans all over the place. And, you know, we want we want them to celebrate the sport. And if they're British, of course, you get, it's great to get a British victory. But what is not good is when it becomes, you know, we're the best nation on earth um, and better than everyone else. You know, I find that uncomfortable. I'm sure that Max is pretty much the same. I mean, you know, we love the Dutch enthusiasm for Formula One. And um, it's great to have for you. I can obviously appreciate that it's great for, for Holland. You know, I've known quite a lot of Dutch racing drivers. And so they're, they're, everyone's benefiting from, from Max. But, you know, we don't want to turn it into anything more than just love of the sport, right? Yeah, correct. Absolutely agree, 100%. How do you think it's going to change the rules of engagement between Lewis and Max going forward, Jack? I don't know. I cannot talk for Lewis, but I, I know that Max is uh, going to be acting normal, like he always does. He doesn't change. He's getting more motivated because of the loss of points, but he's not motivated by the crash itself. No, not at all. He's not revenge type. He's, he's not a better fan. He only wants to beat Lewis in Hungary. Free practice one on top of the list. Free practice two on top of the list. Go out, best time, and go in. That's what he wants. How is he physically after the crash? As far as I've heard, as far as I've known, uh, bruises, blue, a little bit of headache, and that's it. Do you think that he, is there any sense that regret that possibly he could have let Lewis go? It was a strong move down the inside, and if he just let him go, he could have kept even if he'd finished second his deficit on points wouldn't have been as large as it ended up being nobody wants to win he was in the corner it was his corner and that's it do you remember that championship with pk when pk had had a massive shunt at imola 
he kept on coming second to Nigel. Nigel, I think, won more races, but Piquet won the championship because he had more points at the end of it. I mean, it's very difficult to say to a driver, second place isn't bad <laughs> when, they're, when they're of the mindset of someone like Max or Lewis, you know. But you've got to win the championship. It's the championship. That's the, it's the game is you score more points. Trying to explain that to a young competitive driver is so difficult. <laughs> I, I feel the same sense. I would have said the same. Come on, second. But then no, 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 no. Winning the race. That's it. Everyone tells me that Lewis was so hot going into cops that he wouldn't have made the corner anyway. And so if had Max let him go, he would have got him at the exit anyway. Yeah, but that's if and buts and maybe Tom, but it doesn't count anymore. Uh, the steward said, Lewis, don't do it again. So that's it. Point. Let's race. Has Lewis reached out to Max? Has he, has he phoned him? Yeah, as far as I've heard, he phoned him. The hottest issue of that Sunday was that Lewis was celebrating and Max was in the hospital. That hurt the Verstappens too much. And Lewis was in front of me and I said to him, you know, Max is in the hospital. And then he looked to his left where Rosa was standing, the hospital. And I had a little bit of a sense that maybe Lewis wasn't exactly informed how the situation at that moment was. I don't, I don't know for sure, but that makes a little bit sense. That makes a little bit sense. Was that the same time as uh, Natalie was there at all, Jack? Yeah, yeah. We, we were standing next together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we saw that. Yeah, we saw that broker. Yeah, so he wasn't told. And I think that was that maybe they should have let him know. Because I know Lewis not so well as you guys, but I speak to him very, every race. He's not a kind of guy to do this. But the people, uh, um, apologize, uh, how do you call him? Blame him. That's not the guy I know. Nah, agree. So we're going to be witnessing a re-motivated, extra-motivated Max in Hungary. Absolutely. Yeah, only on track. Yeah. Really motivated Max to beat Lewis on track. And that's it. Not verbally, not ignoringly or whatever. Does he have to clear a medical at all before, you know, has he done that already? Yeah, he's done it already. I've had a lot of people ask me, are Max and Lewis going to be next to each other in the press conference on Thursday? <laughs> that would be now, a good one, really. <laughs> Now, it's not happening, but it would have been quite fascinating to have almost just observed their body language, wouldn't it? I find it interesting, Jack, how when... Toto Wolff and Christian Horner are next to each other in that kind of environment. Toto Wolff nowadays defers to Christian. He lets Christian talk. I would say 70-30 of the talk is done by Christian Horner, 70%. And I wonder whether Max would have done the same with Lewis in that kind of environment. I'm fascinated by this rivalry and how they react around each other. Not, Max is not the, the guy with words. So he would have let Lewis do the talking, yeah. you think? Yeah, I think. Yeah, absolutely. He only says, I don't care. See you on track. That's my personal feeling. And do you think he is in any way, afraid is the wrong word, but do you think he's, he's worried that this is going to happen again and again and again as neither backs down? No, we saw these uh, kind of uh, shunts in karting with Max. And no, it's, it's over. Next chapter. Let's, let's fight for a new race. But, but. Right. Let's imagine turn one in Hungary. They're side by side. Will Max let Lewis go? As Damon says. If it's his corner, he goes for it. No, whatever. Oh, let's remember. What was it last race? No. Okay. But when it's a 50-50, Jack, as Cops was at Silverstone, you think he'd still go for it. Yeah, that's what I think. He wouldn't look at the bigger picture. He wouldn't say, I tell you what, P2 will be fine. No. Isn't it amazing how we, we turn Formula 1 into just a battle between two guys it always happens you know the rest are just make weights now aren't they they're just people who people who turn up and they can get on with their work and nobody really cares what they're up to you know it's like they there's all this hard work oh we got fifth in the championship oh well anyway <laughs> good luck for you but it's always been like that yeah yeah that's what i'm saying if you look at a sportive perspective it's okay it's great yeah. These guys fight. What are your viewing figures doing on Ziggo at the minute? Is everyone in, in Holland loving it? Are you getting record numbers? No. At the start of the season, we had them. Uh, but now it's continually high, of course. Good, good figures, but not explosive after Silverstone or something. I went to uh, the Hockenheim ring once and when I was racing against Michael and the, I got into the paddock and I went to the Williams motorhome and there was two policemen. 
and the team boss <laughs> and uh, Harrison was there and said, oh, we need to have a chat because someone had written to the police saying they were going to shoot me if I outqualified Michael. And so from then on, I had to be taken in uh, through the woods by the police in the in the back of the car so no one could find me no <laughs> and i goodness. literally i i stayed in my room the whole i had a friend of mine who i got i said i want you to come <laughs> stay with me and there was a and then we had the curtains drawn the whole time in the hotel it was not much fun uh oh no it won't be but that is rivalry as well and hopefully it won't end up in a bad way but it's good to have a good rivalry that's good Jack, our Dutch correspondent, it's fantastic to speak to you. Thank you very much. You're most welcome, boys, and hope to see you safely in Hungary. Yeah, see you in Hungary. See you, Jack. Well, great to hear from our Dutch correspondent. Jack Pluge from Ziggo. It was nice, a little bit of a, a little bit of cafe life there in Amsterdam. We 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 could experience it. I mean, sadly, our listeners could only experience the clattering of uh, cups and the chatter in the street, but we could actually see Jack um, there sitting out in the sunshine. Jack thinks that Max is only going to want to win in Hungary, so let's talk about Hungary, DH. Yeah. Now, first one from me is I want to take you back to a conversation we had with Juan Pablo Montoya ages ago. You and I were mucking about on motorbikes with him near Madrid and we went out to dinner and JPM said, um, he said, Damon, why were you always so good in Hungary? <laughs> yeah. Because it's a kart track and you never went karting. So can you no, explain he's not, you now? No, that's where he's wrong. Because I ah. realised that I hadn't done karting. So I started on bikes and I went to cars and I was struggling a bit. And then I kind of ran out of money and ran out of... And, I, and the only thing I had left was going karting in bus shelters in London. There was these, like, they'd phone up and go, we're doing a charity kart thing. Do you want to do it? And all the other racing drivers would be doing it. And I'm going, well, this is the only way I'm going to be able to compete. So I, I went and entered these indoor karting uh, things. I did a few of them, but the penny dropped when I was karting in one of these karting events. I was really desperate to try and beat the other guys. And I was focusing like mad. And I was thinking, what is it about karting? And I just got into this mindset. And so I think that was really critical in helping me understand how a car responds around a, a circuit like Hungary. Because it, it's changed a little bit since I raced there. They've, they've lengthened the straight. And, but generally speaking, it's got a lot of slippery corners with quite a lot of long 180 degree corners. So I got the sense of, of how to drive it like a kart. So I'm quite satisfied that the person who didn't do any karting beat all those guys who'd done karting since they were five on a track that was more like a go-kart than any other track we go to. Just shows. Well, there you go, Juan Pablo Montoya, yeah. back in your box. You've got to apply yourself, you see. You got to. Yeah. Yeah. Was it an enjoyable track to drive? Because you won there twice. I liked it. I thought it was. I thought it was, you know, nice and dry and dusty, and you could carry speed into the corner, into the apex. So you could roll the car in and then build speed up through the apex. So it's a bit like a golf swing. You know, you're kind of accelerating through the ball and... Take, take your word for it. <laughs> take it. He's making all these hand signals on the Zoom, everybody. I don't know what he's doing really, but... but um, so I enjoyed it. Yeah, a bit tight and twisty. To, for racing, it's, it's not so good. You have to qualify on pole position, really. You have to, you know, you can dominate from, from pole because it is so difficult to pass. Although I did overtake... Mick, I know. How, how good was that overtake? That was one of my Schumacher. best ever overtakes, that was. <laughs> yes, and I didn't yes. crash into him. And <laughs> the only reason I didn't crash into him is because I wasn't fighting him for a world championship. And he let me go, basically, because he was smart enough to know this was not worth fighting over. And uh, so we're talking, listener, about a pass I pulled on Michael Schumacher going into Term 1 in Hungary. And he was in a Ferrari and I was in the Arrows. And uh, yeah, one of my greatest days as a racing driver, I'd have to say, the Hungarian Grand Prix of 1997. Was that even sweeter? Even though you finished second, was that even sweeter than the wins? I think it was in many ways. It was a kind of underdog moment, wasn't it? No one expected much of us. And, and things just went really well. And uh, we had a fantastic day in the sun. And Jackie Oliver, who um, had run the teams for the last 300 and whatever it is, 30 Grand Prix who'd never won, his heart was in his mouth the whole way. And so he was understandably nearly in tears when we didn't win again. <laughs> so they never won a Grand Prix. But he came very close. 
And of course, Max Verstappen hasn't won the Hungarian Grand Prix. He's finished second for the last two years. Do you remember last year when he crashed on his way to the grid? I don't remember that. Did he? What? Yeah, he crashed on his way to the grid and then Red Bull did this amazing oh, no, no, repair course, I don't job. Yeah. Was it raining? Yeah. Was it raining? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A little slip. It wasn't really raining. It's just a it bit It had greasy. rained or something. Yeah, or... yeah. And then they changed, I think, the front left corner of his car of on the grid. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah, I need a little me memory jog, Tom, but I now remember exactly what you're talking about. And they did this incredible last minute dash, you know, uh, fixing everything and got him ready. That was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Finished second ahead of Valtteri Bottas. So they did an engine change as well in about 20 minutes, didn't they? Once. Where was yeah. that? But um, no, the great, great team, obviously great mechanics. How do you think it's going to play out then, DH? Do you think, I mean, so, so Lewis Hamilton is an eight time winner of the Hungarian Grand Prix. He's going for number nine. It's extraordinary how good he is there. Mercedes mm. have a great record there as well. So they are going to be tough to beat. But we know that Red Bull have been quick everywhere this year. And there's no reason to think that they won't be quick this weekend as well. I think that the thing about Silverstone was that they'd gone for a very hard compound, even for Silverstone. And they were able to push like crazy. Uh, if they'd gone for the softest one, it's it's tyre management, it's tyre you know, heat degradation, front front tires get rooted at Hungary. So it's got to be a Red Bull circuit, more than likely. And I'm not sure that Mercedes are that optimistic. We'll see see what strategies they use, what tactics they use. They're going to have to think on their feet and be clever because I don't think in a straight fight they're going to beat Max. And the last Red Bull win at the Hungara ring was Daniel Ricciardo back in 2014. So they haven't done it for a while. No, but they've, as we've, we know, they've done things this year that they haven't done for a very long time. And they've stopped, yeah, they've denied true. Mercedes their usual winning streak. I mean, when was the last time they didn't win five Grand Prix? Now, the last time we had the softest compounds in the range, Ferrari were very competitive, weren't they? Charles Leclerc on pole at Monaco, on yeah. pole at Baku. I think they've got reasons to be upbeat. The drivers are playing it down, saying, no, 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 it's a step too far. Because let's not forget, Charles Leclerc came within two laps of winning the British Grand Prix last time out. Can he go better? He's saying it'll be difficult. But then... in he said he wouldn't qualify on pole at the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. And he Prix. always does something exceptional. And, and, and that's no bad reflection on Carlos, who also is an excellent driver. But, you know, we've seen it now from, from Charles uh, many occasions where he pulls out something miraculous lap from somewhere in qualifying. So um, will they be able to keep it up during the race? I don't know. I think they're, they're so up and down, aren't they? Actually being be able to say in advance of a race where Ferrari are going to be is almost impossible i don't think even they know who was it asking David. <laughs> they asked them how have you done so well at silverstone and they said we don't know <laughs> no just... no that was lewis asked asked charles yeah but the fact is they did do well and actually the only race that left them scratching their heads was the french grand prix because the two prior to that they'd been on pole and gone very well then we had france where they had a complete mare and they held their hands up and admitted it and then we went to the two austrias and they were quick there. They were quick at Silverstone. So I think there's every reason to believe they might be good. Could be. Could be good. Yeah. I think they're looking stronger all the time, aren't they? But I tell you who could be absolutely stunning is McLaren. I think Lando could be on fire in Hungary. I think it could be just their kind of track in qualifying anyway. Why do you say that? I think it's the kind of car they've got is generating good downforce usable downforce in a way that makes hungry suited to it and the whole of sector two is fast isn't it it's all fourth fifth gear corners so you need a, a really nice balance on your car don't you i know you say the front tires get rooted there but through there i think there's a lot of time to be made and the mclaren does seem to be very well balanced or certainly in lando's hands it's, it does and i think that that's why i'm saying i think that that is going to suit lando's abilities We'll see whether Daniel has got any more of an insight into how the car works for his own liking. Uh, he seemed happier with it at Silverstone, but you cannot compare Silverstone to Hungary almost in any way whatsoever. As you just said, you know, we're going from the hardest compound to the softest compounds and we're going to a circuit with long 180 degree corners, slower maximum or minimum speeds in the corners. And uh, it's all about running that car, getting that car to stick in the apex and stay there and get be able to get on the power and just let it flow because you're almost, almost always in a corner in Hungary. It's one of the lowest maximum throttle circuits, isn't it, we go to next to Monaco. 
Go on then. Who's your wild card for this weekend? Wild card is Lando. Yeah, I think that's is that wild enough? Or do you? Well, I'm do you, not sure do, that's do you, that do you know what, you know what Pierre Gasly do? I mean, could be. Could no, be, I was going to say George Russell. I think George Russell. I think that Williams is going to fly round here. Could be a top. I mean, yeah, I mean, could do go to Q three again. I mean, points. You think points? Points and Hungary. Well, for- I think if you start in Q three, yeah, and a, a certain world champion's told me that you can't overtake round Hungary. So if you start in Q three, then you're game on for points, aren't right, you? Right, I'm going down the bookies right now. Actually, I'll put a tenner on for you. <laughs> I think this could be it, Tom. This could be the big one. What is it? Thousand to one? We're going to be millionaires what, 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 by the what, end of it. What average, what's, a, what's the odds for George Russell actually scoring a point? 100 to one? 10 to one? Well, I imagine it's... It's probably dropping, isn't it, all the yeah, time? Yeah, I was going to say there. He's knocking on the door. He's going to happen. Yeah. And you thought that George was going to be announced a Mercedes driver at Silverstone. He told us, and he was true to his word. It didn't he happen. He was, wasn't he? He knew that it wasn't going to happen, and it didn't. Do you think it's going to happen this weekend? I think it's going to happen in the summer holidays. They'll announce it in the summer holidays. I think they'll they'll let Valtteri have a nice holiday. <laughs> Doesn't come. sound like a great holiday to me. <laughs> and then and then they'll make the announcement. I'd, I'm guessing. Don't know. So he's my wild card anyway. George Russell in a Williams. Well, we know he's in a Williams. That's not news, is it? Well, no, that's not news. But he's my wild card. Oh, wild card. Yeah. Okay. George. Yeah. George is the wild card. Let's think out the box. Oh, I know. I've got a good one. Fernando Alonso in the Alpine. Nah, too old. It's his fortieth birthday on Thursday. DH. Happy birthday yeah. to you! <laughs> hey, look, actually, I'm going to invite the listeners. What should we do in the press conference on Thursday to celebrate Fernando Alonso's fortieth birthday? It's the day of his fortieth birthday. Mm. Let us know. Get involved on social media. So he's in there with Sebastian Vettel. Could Seb give him a present, or, or, or mm. I don't know. It's one of these things you really don't want drawing attention to, isn't it? When you're a Formula One driver, is now I'm now 40. Oh, we're going to do that. But he's a fit 40. I mean, he's a very fit 40. You'd never... I look at him. Well, he looks, but he uses an e-bike like you now. That's what he said, isn't it? Yeah. He's, yeah. He's, cause yeah. I'm old. But he's joking. He's fit as a fiddle. And he's just as good a racing driver as, as he has been. I, I mean, maybe a bit of speed's gone. I don't know. It doesn't seem to show much, does it? I think he's... Uh, He's uh, one of the he few seems drivers. As good as ever, doesn't he? Yeah, I, I think he's, in, he's incredible. I mean, just go back to the sprint at Silverstone, Damon. The sprint was awesome. Oh. And he's hungry, which is no pun intended, obviously. Um, but he is hungry for more. And I think it's the sort of circuit where he could go well. That, that Alpine's coming along, you know. Things are happening there, they're up to things. This is the Ask Damon section. And what you do is you ask me a question. The clue is in the title. It's askdamonhill at gmail.com. And you send a voice message to us and we'll play it. Just like we're going to do now. All right. Question one. Hi, Damon. Matt here from Oslo. Whilst I'm loving Formula One in 2021, for me, the 90s would always be my favourite era. You had cutting edge technology, independent teams running lots of innovation and not least seven different world champions in the decade. So my question is, are you in agreement with me? And if not, which is your favourite era of F1? Thanks. Hi, Matt from Oslo. Um, That was uh, a good question, quite provocative, because I don't really want to be one of these people who say, oh, it was much better in my day. I mean, I think the thing is about Formula One, it's about what's happening now. It always has been about now. And because the standard of what is left behind is usually incredibly high there are all kinds of eras that you can look back on and go well that was the best era or that was you know they were all and they were different too so you look back at the 60s you know it's a very different vibe to the 70s or the 80s so 90s obviously that's my era i think there were some great things in the 90s i don't know if it was any better than any other year i think or decade i should say um the 90s were technically we had Active cars, we started off with active cars and then they started restricting the technology. And now you have technology all over the place. I mean, every angle of the vehicle and the strategy is covered in engineers and data and it's mighty impressive today. So I think you can, you're entitled to have your favourite decade in Formula One. What's yours, Tom? Well, you haven't actually said what yours is. Mine is the now. I think mine is now. I kind of make a rule of, you know, not hankering after something that's past and gone. 
we're bound to have flat races we're bound to have times when it's you don't like it so much but by and large i think it's a better show than it ever has been and silverstone's a case in point isn't it with the the sprint qualifying hey i agree we have to live in the now but i'm gonna also give matt something to think about which is i'm gonna go for the 80s i thought the 80s was fabulous those turbo cars 1500 horsepower in qualifying on qualifying tires absolutely mental and i loved all that so yeah matt i would go um we have to live in the moment but that was mental that was that was great formula one as well how old are you tom in the 80s well, it depends which year, but uh, but I was in double figures, if that's what you're... Um... I have a theory, which is that when you're at a certain age, you, you get turned on to Formula One. That's always going to be your favourite era. A bit like pop music. Yeah. I don't think it just applies to, it applies to everything. When you're a 16-year-old, that's when you fall in love with everything, isn't it? Yeah. But do you still wear flares, for example? <laughs> I mean, you know, the thing is, things change, don't they? Go on, but how much would you have liked to have driven one of those 1,500 horsepower Brabham BMWs of the mid-80s? Go on, DH. Uh, I did sort of drive a, a Benetton, turbocharged Benetton Ford, which so I had got some feeling for it, which was it was mind-blowing and awesome and uh, and stupid, really, because your legs are pointing right, they're sticking right out in the front of the car. So um, there is some downsides to those cars, but I agree. I do like the ground effect cars. I like those the way they looked and the way they raced, they look good. They look fun. Well, what about question two? I think we've got another Matt. This one from the USA, the US of A. Hey, Damon. My question is this. It's 1993 and you get your first podium in Brazil. One and two spin out and you're now leading the race. What was the feeling you had? What was going through your mind when you knew you had Senna behind you? What was it like when he overtook you? And what was it like... Uh, being on the podium for your first time. Thanks, Damon. Hi, Matt. Yeah, that was uh, that was quite an exceptional uh, experience, I have to say, because it was my first full season in in Formula One with a top team, and now here I am, this little old me, and in Brazil racing against Emerson, and admittedly he did beat me. But on the podium, we I think we had Fangio, who came up on, on the podium. I did feel a little bit like uh, an imposter. You know, I think I had imposter syndrome, whatever it's going. I'm, I'm standing there thinking, oh, should I be here, really? You know, but I, d- I do remember afterwards having really bad stomach cramps because it was the first time I'd been to, into Lagos and it's the bumpiest, toughest, one of the toughest tracks physically that we go to. And uh, I was pretty exhausted after that one. And, um, but yeah, mightily chuffed to be there with uh, the great Ayrton Senna and Fangio on the podium. What a, what a day. I definitely got a kick out of that. I should have beaten him. The truth is, I should have blooming beaten him, and I didn't. Was that your first conversation with Ayrton Senna on the podium? Um, it probably would have, because was it, one of the first, was it the first race of the season? No, South Africa was the South first Africa race. South Africa was so the first race. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, it was one of the early times. Yeah, I mean, I um, definitely was more used to watching Ayrton Senna on telly like everyone else. So to be there with a great man and uh, in that situation was, I do remember it was very hot. Uh, It wasn't in a good place comfort-wise. I stomach cramps and dehydrated and headache and beaten up and the sore neck and everything. Kind of wanted to go and lie down, I think. Extraordinary. When I see pictures now of it, I do have to pinch myself, look back and go, well, that, that really is me there. What techniques did you have to help with the net round Interlagos, which, of course, is yeah. anti-clockwise? Did you have any techniques? Like, did you tie your head to the side of the cockpit? Well, I'd already, like uh, when I, for my very first Formula One test, I realised that the make or break thing is going to be whether or not you can hold your head up. So I did loads and loads of exercises. I had a crash helmet with weights on it, and I used to just lie on the floor and watch TV and just keep my head off the ground and do what I did. I did rotational movements if you think of a horse your neck is very strong in one direction in other words if i was to go on hands and knees the back of my neck would be able to hold my head up for a long time so the grav gravity pulling your head forwards the back there's loads of muscles on the back of your neck and slightly around your side but in the front there's nothing because that's where your esophagus is so there's virtually nothing at the front and the sides which is what you need in formula one so it's a very unusual thing to do to develop the muscles in that way 
in order to get your neck muscles to develop strength in the forward facing direction you need to kind of do rotational movements so it's uh so i just lie there watching tv and do a you know do a hundred of those you know every day and eventually you develop a neck and so anti-clockwise wasn't a problem it wasn't so much of a problem for me there no but i do remember Ayrton had a clip on his helmet and he had one race i don't know if it was that race where he put a strap around his arm to hold his head up so his neck muscles weren't as good but it was so bumpy interlogs it was vicious and there was a bump coming out of turn the center s's then you got down down the back straight and then you've got the you've got the first left hand and then the left hand that goes down the hill there's a bump there which was so your neck is on the limit with the load and then suddenly you hit a bump and it was like getting concussed it was so bumpy so 60 odd laps or so of that and uh, you feel it after did that upset the car that bump or was it only upsetting the driver um that upsets the car of course yeah the car jumping all over the place so it's um it's a ropey old track surface which actually i think is good for racing i think perfectly smooth tracks are very bad for racing because i think part of the art of being a driver is to be able to find the way around the track you know it's a bit like a golf course or something it's no good if it's perfectly flat it has to have undulations and bumps and you learn where you can go and where you can't where you can use cambers and stuff to get more traction so it's a great racetrack and it's and it does always produce great racing doesn't it interlagos it does yeah and of course we've got the sprint quali there later in the year you flagged up the uh, email address to send the voice notes to so last thing on our agenda is any other business and i wanted to put it to you did you see mick schumacher driving the jordan 191 at silverstone last week his old man's first Formula One car. Yes, I saw that. And uh, he looked pleased as, as anything, didn't he, to be in there and having a go in it. I, and he, but he didn't know how to use a clutch and a gear lever. <laughs> so I think he had to learn pretty quick how to, uh, how to do, um, you know, using an H-box and, uh, and a clutch pedal. He was, he was getting after it, though. I've seen some footage. Yeah, fantastic. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen the moving footage yet. I've only seen the garage shots. And he got a vis- visit from Sebastian so he got uh, a special day, I think, for, for Mick there. All right, DH, I think we're done for another week. Yeah, one down. How many more to go? <laughs> one more down. <laughs> Still no. loads to go. <laughs> but it's, I think we've done very well, Tom, considering there wasn't a race last weekend. Yeah. Well, I just yeah. want to say, I mean, those of you who are not going to be at the Hungarian Grand Prix, I will be at the Silverstone Classic driving my FW18 again. Are you going to do a few neck exercises before getting back in that car? I certainly am not, Tom. I'm no, I'm not. I'm past that point of trying to develop, you know, what's it, what's it called, definition in my muscles. I don't. I, I'm not interested. It's not going to work. Are you going to do more I laps got, than you did at the British Grand Prix, though? I, I don't think so. I think I think one or two. I think they they don't like the car to be overused. I mean, it's quite an old thing, but um, and as am I. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh dear. But anyway, so you'll be in Hungary. Yeah, I'll be in Hungary. Can't wait. And Pinks, if you're listening on your sunbed, I hope you're having a great time and we'll see you again in, what is it, a couple of weeks. Crikey, yeah. So we're going to miss you next week as well, damn it. We're going to have loads to talk about, aren't we? Yeah, next, next week's episode of F1 Nation, which is actually produced by Formula One in association with... Audio Boom! Kaboom. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>